Up now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is Sherry Ann. And we are the hosts of Mall Talk Now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Today, we are examining the piece from the Harbor Rat Report titled Aberdeen and the Nonprofit Industrial Complex How the National System of Poverty Management Manifests in Our Local Nonprofit Sector. We're looking forward to talking about some of the aspects of what we've seen as destructive elements in the institutional nonprofits, including those in and around Race Harbor. Our hope is to provide a critique that is useful for people working in this industry to call out the system itself, rather than the individuals working within the system. These care workers are often some of the most dedicated, hardworking, and underpaid set of workers in the economy. Burnout is a real phenomenon as well, leading to a high turnover rate and all the difficulties that result from that. These bureaucracies exist everywhere, and for a lot of people, they are the mediators between them and many social services. Unfortunately, these institutions are often more concerned about their own perpetuation than delivering the service they claim to provide. Funds go to growing the organization and paying salaries rather than going to the people they exist to help. We here at Molotov Now are very interested in reporting on the ways this manifests in both urban and rural environments. We imagine things can look quite different in certain aspects and similar in others. There is likely lessons to be learned from each other in this regard. We will examine the industry, its effects on those it serves and those it employs, and touch on some possible other models to charity-based nonprofits such as mutual aid, radical solidarity, and cooperation. Our hope is to point to the underlying systemic issues that the industry faces, and not to undermine or minimize the efforts of the workers. We have our monthly Radical News Roundup next, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. You've decided to ditch your boss and become the master of your own destiny by sharing your skills and talents on your own terms. But unfortunately, we're all still suffering under capitalism and need to deal with the social construct of U.S. currency to pay the bills and fucking taxes. You are punk rock. And finances are not. But keeping track of the vegan cheddar coming into and going out of your business, collective, co-op, or nonprofit is important to make informed decisions and minimize the effects this bullshit system has over them. You have important shit to do, so let us deal with the money nonsense. Because we happen to find spreadsheets and data bitching in their own special way. Judge us. I dare you. Blackflower Bookkeeping is here with sliding scale solutions for your unique needs and plans for the future. We believe that these services should be accessible to all folks, even your anti-capitalist ass. So whether you play music, brew java, sell feet pics, or make literal vegan cheddar, we can help without making your broke ass broker. 
So get off your kilted leftist keister and seize your own means. Schedule a free consultation to see if Black Flower Bookkeeping has what it takes to help you make your self-sufficient anarcho-commie dreams a reality. Let us manage the back end of your business so you can get back to shaking your back end business on OnlyFans. Oh, and your partnership with Black Flower Bookkeeping supports the Black Flower Collective and its many radical programs. Oh, fuck, the fucking cats are back. Cat Wranglers, please contact us now at blackflowerbookkeeping at protonmail.com. We need you as much as you need us. Welcome back to Molotov Now. In local news, after a recent partial sweep of our local homeless encampment, the Washington Department of Transportation placed small boulders in and around the rest of their property, which surrounds the camp, preventing any further tents from being laid down nearby. In response to this sweep, we at Sabo Media signed on to a joint statement with other local organizations in town such as Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network and Food Not Bombs. This statement included a call for a week of action in solidarity with the Atlanta Forest Defenders, action against the city of Aberdeen for their callous treatment of the unhoused. The statement reads as follows. We here in Aberdeen are all too familiar with the violence that the state inflicts upon those it deems threatening, surplus, or distasteful. Police are the enforcement mechanism of the city, and they cost people their lives in a multitude of ways every day. In the same vein of state-sponsored violence we experience here every day, on January 18th in Atlanta, law enforcement shot and killed Manny Tehran, a.k.a. Tortuguita, or Little Turtle, during an early morning raid of the forest encampment to defend the Walani, a.k.a. Atlanta Forest, and to stop Cop City. In response to this killing of Tortuguita, the movement called for a week of action from March 4th to the 11th in solidarity with the forest defenders. Read their statement and learn more about their struggle at defendtheatlantaforest.org backslash solidarity. In light of the recent sweep of the unhoused encampment here in town, a move that included placing large boulders in and around the small area that remains in order to prevent future expansion of the camp, we at Chihalis River Mutual Aid Network want to bring together a coalition of voices in the community who oppose this move and the various hostile moves the city has made against its unhoused and vulnerable residents. We also want to call for actions to be taken in defiance of the city and its intentions to eliminate our friends and family. To this end, we have crafted the following statement that all are free to sign on to and pass along. We are asking community leaders and organizations to endorse the following statement by emailing crmutualaidnet at riseup.net. Multiple autonomous and community organizations have already endorsed. For personal endorsements, please list your name and any relevant roles, titles, or affiliations. We hope to announce an initial list of endorsers by the end of February. The statement will be published at sabomedia.noblogs.org backslash solidarity. When law enforcement struck this blow against the movement to stop Cop City in Atlanta, they did what our police here in Aberdeen do every time they move along or, quote, sweep unhoused individuals. They inflicted state violence against peaceful people just trying to resist the worst effects of our capitalist system. The city is constantly making moves against the unhoused, which cause the needless deaths of people every month. 
It is incredibly difficult to maintain an existence when the city threatens your stability on a daily basis. From removing the public restrooms around town to demolishing people's homes and belongings, the city of Aberdeen is active in sabotaging the efforts of the unhoused and mutual aid volunteers in bettering the lives of these people. The combined crises of mental health care and addiction make it even harder for certain individuals to access the care they need, leading to many interactions with the city's police. All of this instability caused by the city serves to make it harder for people to survive the long waitlist for a housing unit. Many of the people living on the streets are there because of the lack of available affordable housing units, not because they are not trying to seek assistance or shelter. It can take years to get into housing in this county. This is real violence committed by our city government against the most vulnerable residents of our community. For too long, the city of Aberdeen has pushed around the community of unhoused individuals within its borders. It is time for our community to organize itself, become familiar with the so-called legal protections afforded them, and fight for justice above and beyond the system. This grassroots coalition is calling for a week of action against the city of Aberdeen's treatment of the unhoused, in conjunction with the week of solidarity actions already planned for March 4th to 11th. To this end, we will be holding a homeless rights conference in the Aberdeen Library parking lot on Sunday, March 5th. This event is for our local community to come together and try to come up with a plan of action regarding future city sweeps and unhoused harassment. We will be discussing the community's response to the continued threats to our unhoused comrades and making sure that everyone is well informed of their legal rights. All interested parties are invited to attend, but nothing about the unhoused will be solved without participation and guidance from the unhoused population themselves, and their voices will be centered. For us, it is important to show solidarity with the struggle in Atlanta, for we all experience violence at the hands of the state. And a show of solidarity with our street comrades here and those fighting to stop Cop City lets them know that we are with them and lets authorities know that we will not let this violence go unanswered. These actions against our city will be our show of solidarity with those defending the forest in Atlanta. It is important to uplift the voices of the marginalized and the oppressed in this time. Let the tactics you bring to the party be diverse and creative. Go out and meet someone who lives on the streets. Form a protest against the city sweeps. Join us at the Homeless Rights Conference, or smash back at the system in your own creative way. Any action, big or small, can help break down the barriers the city builds between us. If you too agree that the city has gone too far in its mistreatment of the unhoused in town, then please join us in signing the statement announcing that our community will no longer tolerate this without taking action. You can show your solidarity by joining us at the conference or by taking your own autonomous actions against the city during the week of March 4th to 11th. We vow to continue to take action every time the city sweeps the unhoused of Aberdeen. Seemingly in response to this statement, the city of Aberdeen made plans to deliver notices to every tent at camp that they must remove themselves and their belongings in order for the city to come and destroy the structures that they have built, remove what they call trash, much of which is actually just people's belongings that don't fit into their residence. This follows a weekend of extremely cold weather that brought over an inch of snow to Aberdeen. The Washington Department of Transportation also fenced the areas previously only blocked from camping with rocks this week. It seems the squeeze is being put on camp, despite it being the middle of winter and no cold weather shelter being provided this year. This is a disgusting display of power by the city that should be viewed as the attack it is, and it is time to strike back. City Hall has become a nexus of hate against this community, those most vulnerable to attack. But how do we fight back against a city that doesn't give two shits about its residents' lives? When your city is literally trying to kill you, what can you do? What the city cares about is money. Anarchists should concern themselves, then, 
with what actions cost the city money. They shouldn't be allowed to do what they are doing without something happening. It needs to cost them something when they act like this. We must be careful to not be reactionary, though. We need to meditate on what is effective and strategic, not what makes us feel the coolest. We can turn their profit motive against them by showing them that these attacks against the homeless are literally not worth it. In previous episodes, we told you about Queer Satanic, the four former members of the Satanic Temple who have been getting sued by the Salem, Massachusetts-based temple since April 2020 and had won their federal district court lawsuit with a final dismissal in January. Unfortunately, the Satanic Temple has appealed their latest court loss and announced in a filing to the Ninth Circuit that they plan to refile a new case utilizing Washington's state courts. Any financial assistance you can provide to our comrades to help them continue paying their legal defense bills would be appreciated. You can find them online as at Queer Satanic and QueerSatanic.com. The parents and young daughter of a 36-year-old man who killed himself while detained in the basement of a southeast Washington courthouse have filed an $8.5 million claim, alleging that Kyle Lara's body wasn't discovered for 18 hours and that officials twice served food to his corpse. This is the worst case I have ever seen, said the family's attorney, also a member of the state agency responsible for establishing standards and certification guidelines for Washington correction officers. The conditions of Lara's Garfield County Courthouse confinement, he said, are intolerable in any civilized society. The family's claim, filed Wednesday, alleges county officials erred in placing the distraught Lara in solitary confinement and provided wildly insufficient supervision, leading to the man's death. The county has 60 days to answer the claim, after which the family intends to file a civil rights lawsuit. Lara had been booked into the jail on suspicions of domestic violence March 23rd after deputies arrested him over a fight with his girlfriend. County officials chose to place him in a dingy, solitary confinement cell in the basement of the courthouse, which was built in 1901, disregarding concerns that he might hurt himself, according to the claim. Lara had expressed suicidal ideation after he had gotten into an altercation with another person in the jail and punched a wall, breaking bones in his hand, the claim says. He had also made similar statements during previous bookings, according to the claim. The lawyer cited federal precedent stating that housing potentially suicidal people in an isolation cell is like throwing gasoline on a fire, and documents from the claim reference data showing half of prison and jail suicides occur among a single-digit percentage of people kept in solitary confinement. Garfield County Sheriff Drew Heyer didn't immediately respond to a message seeking comment on Thursday. Lara's family and their lawyer claim he died because of a lax monitoring system. While the county's jail policy calls for frequent interaction with people detained there and increased supervision of those in solitary confinement, the claim alleges that the jail is not staffed by corrections officers. Instead, according to the claim, dispatchers, who are not commissioned law enforcement officers, are tasked with monitoring the jail and its 20 cameras. The family's lawyer said that this alleged practice violates state law. The claim also alleges that county's dispatchers, who often work alone, are required to monitor, serve meals, and administer medication to people in jails. In addition to standard duties like answering 911 calls, dispatching deputies and firefighters, and entering warrants and protection orders into the court system. The claim alleges the county had no policies instructing dispatchers on how often they were to conduct, quote, video safety checks, or telling them what to do if something seemed amiss. Instead, county officials told dispatchers to use their common sense and call one of the county's four deputies if they need to check on someone in the jail, the claim says. The family's lawyer said that such a video check policy is explicitly prohibited by federal law. Under the law, all pre-child detainees have a right to direct view safety checks, he said. That doesn't happen at the Garfield County Jail, and Kyle Lara died as a result. 
In other news outside of Washington, in Walker County, Alabama, the mother of Anthony Tony Mitchell, a Alabama Walker County man who died in police custody in January, has filed a federal lawsuit against multiple jail officials, including Sheriff Nick Smith, alleging that the authorities deprived the man of his constitutional rights by leaving him in the jail's walk-in freezer or, quote, similar frigid environment for hours on end. This is one of the most appalling cases of jail abuse the country has seen. The 37-page federal lawsuit begins. On the night of January 25th to January 26, 2023, Anthony Don Mitchell, Tony, froze to death while incarcerated at the Walker County Jail. Lawyers for the family wrote in a complaint that the case raises an appalling question. How does a man literally freeze to death while incarcerated in a modern climate-controlled jail in the custody and care of corrections officers? The suit alleges that Mitchell was likely placed in a restraint chair in the jail's kitchen walk-in freezer or similar rigid environment and left there for hours. Only with the release of an internal surveillance video recorded by a correctional officer did what happened to Mitchell begin to come to light. According to John Goldfarb, a lawyer representing Mitchell's family, the correctional officer was later fired by the sheriff's department, according to the lawyer. A surveillance video obtained and first reported by CBS 42 shows what the family says appears to be their loved one being carried into a loading area of the Walker County Jail. In it, Mitchell is limp, his head and feet dangling as uniformed personnel, with sheriff emblazoned on one of their vests, lay his body just outside of a marked police SUV. In total, four uniformed officials then worked to put him into the police vehicle. The video contradicts an earlier statement from the Walker County Sheriff's Office claiming Mitchell was alert and conscious when he left the jail for transport to a local hospital. The cause of his hypothermia is not clear. It is possible he had an underlying medical condition resulting in hypothermia. I do not know if he could have been exposed to a cold environment. I do believe that hypothermia was the ultimate cause of his death, said the county coroner. Screenshots from additional surveillance video included in the lawsuit show that Mitchell was naked during his detention. He was placed, the suit said, in a concrete isolation cell for the duration of his two-week stint in the jail. The cell lacked a bed or other furnishing, the suit said. There was only a drain in the floor that could be used as a toilet. The cell was bare cement, the equivalent of a dog kennel, but unlike a dog, Tony was not even given a mat to sleep on. At least five hours passed from the time Mitchell was removed from the frigid environment until he was transported to the hospital, according to the complaint. In addition to their initial written statement, the January 13th post by the Walker County Sheriff's Office included an unedited full-body photo of Mitchell, whose face appeared to be spray-painted black. One of the Mitchell's family members said that the photo shocked her. I hadn't seen him in two years, and that was the first time I'd seen him, and the last, she said. The photo, which was shared hundreds of times across social media and in multiple news outlets, garnered significant public pushback by those criticizing the sensationalism of the post. According to Facebook records, the sheriff's office edited the post later that day, cropping out the photo to exclude Mitchell's face. Court records show that Mitchell was brought before a judge the day of his arrest, but was listed as being unable to sign paperwork by court officials. We knew he was in jail, and we thought that was the safest place for him at the time, his family member said, but it turned out to be the worst place for him. The state of Florida executed 59-year-old Donald Dilbeck, who was sentenced to death 32 years ago by a non-unanimous jury under a death penalty statute that has since been found unconstitutional. Dilbeck, who was killed as a punishment for fatally stabbing a woman named Faye Van, was the first person executed in Florida since 2019. The timing of his execution appears to be part of a push by Governor Ron DeSantis to bring back death sentences by non-unanimous juries. DeSantis, who is expected to run for president, signed Dilbeck's death warrant last month on the same day that he floated changing state law to allow non-unanimous juries to impose death sentences. 
Maybe eight out of 12 have to agree or something, DeSantis suggested at a Florida Sheriff's Association conference, just before ordering the execution of a man with that exact jury split. I know I hurt people when I was young. I really messed up, Dilbeck reportedly said just before his death. But I know Ron DeSantis has done a lot worse. He's taken a lot from a lot of people. I speak for all men, women, and children. He's put his foot on our necks. Ron DeSantis and other people like him can suck our dicks. Shortly after DeSantis's jury suggestion, Republican lawmakers filed a set of bills that would replace the unanimous jury requirement with an 8-4 threshold and allow a judge to overrule a jury to impose a death sentence. I'm not minimizing what Dilbeck did to people, Florida Capitol defender Allison Miller told the Tallahassee Democrat, but he's most definitely a political pawn. DeSantis has cited the outcome of the trial for Nicholas Cruz, who killed 17 people in a 2018 shooting in Parkland, Florida, as a reason to bring back non-unanimous jury's verdicts. Cruz was sentenced to life in prison without parole after jurors split 9-3 over the death penalty. Not all of the victims of the Parkland shooting wanted Cruz to be sentenced to death. There is currently no state in the country where a jury can legally impose a death sentence with an 8-4 vote, according to Robert Dunham, former executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. Alabama is the only state that currently allows non-unanimous juries to sentence people, and even it requires 10 votes in favor of death. Missouri and Indiana allow a judge to impose the death penalty in cases where the jury is divided. Like most people sentenced to death, Dilbeck endured extreme abuse as a child. His birth mother drank 18 to 24 beers per day throughout her pregnancy, resulting in a catastrophic effect on Mr. Dilbeck's intellectual and adaptive functioning, his lawyers wrote in a petition requesting that the Supreme Court review his case. That Mr. Dilbeck suffers from neurobehavioral disorder associated with prenatal alcohol exposure is thoroughly medically documented, unrebutted, and factually beyond dispute, the lawyers continued. The Supreme Court ruled in 2002 that executing people with intellectual disabilities violates constitutional protections against cruel and unusual punishment. In this petition, Dilbeck's lawyers argued that NDPAE is functionally similar and identical in both etiology and symptomology to intellectual disabilities and should exclude him from execution. Dilbeck was put in foster care when he was four years old and began using drugs by the age of 13, the Tampa Bay Times reported. When he was 15, he was sentenced to life in prison for fatally shooting Lee County Sheriff's deputy, Dwight Lynn Hall, after the officer caught the boy with a stolen car. The teen was repeatedly sexually assaulted in prison. In 1990, he escaped from an off-site vocational program, purchased a knife, and encountered Van and her car in a parking lot. When she refused to drive him away, he fatally stabbed her. In 1991, Dilbeck was sentenced to death by a jury, with eight people voting in favor of death and four against. At the time, jurors could recommend a death sentence with a simple majority. As the clerk read the sentence aloud, one juror wept uncontrollably, the Tallahassee Democrat reported, referencing the newspaper's archives. Readers wrote to the newspaper disturbed by how such an arbitrary split could still send someone to death row, or by how Dilbeck's history of childhood trauma seemed to have granted him some, but not enough, mercy. In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down part of Florida's death penalty system, ruling that it did not give jurors enough of a role in determining the false the fate of a defendant. Later that year, the state legislature amended the statute to require at least 10 jurors to recommend a death sentence in order for a judge to impose the punishment. The Florida Supreme Court subsequently held that it is unconstitutional for judges to impose death sentences with a non-unanimous jury recommendation. In March 2017, state lawmakers amended its death penalty law again to require unanimous jury decisions. But in 2020, the Florida Supreme Court made a stunning reversal. By then, three of the liberal and moderate justices had reached the mandatory retirement age of 75. The court majority reinstated the non-unanimous death sentence of a man named Mark Poole, finding, quote, our court was wrong in 2016. 
The 2020 decision found that only jury decisions about whether an individual is eligible for the death penalty need to be unanimous, not the actual decision to impose the sentence. The majority returns Florida to its status as an absolute outlier among the jurisdictions in this country that utilize the death penalty, Justice Jorge Labarga wrote in a dissent. Further, the majority removes an important safeguard for the ensuring that the death penalty is only applied to the most aggravated and least mitigated of murders. In the strongest possible terms, I dissent. Digital rights nonprofit, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, filed an amicus brief last Thursday urging the Supreme Court not to narrow Section 230. In the brief, the EFF said that the case of Gonzalez versus Google could be detrimental to all users of speech online if the court sided with the petitioners. The suit, which was launched in the wake of the 2015 Paris terrorist attacks, argues that platforms that use algorithmic recommendations for users should be held liable for what they recommend. It also argues that Section 230 should not apply to services that enable users to find and share content via URLs or website addresses. If the court sides against Google, it would be the largest change to platform protections under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The rule gives social media platforms and companies broad immunity from what gets posted on the platform. The Gonzalez vs. Google case could alter that significantly. The EFF argues that it would make the internet worse and demonstrably less free. The case is set to be argued next month. Under the new legal regime, intermediaries would hesitate to make content accessible via URL, the brief said. Searching and sharing would be severely limited. Content could exist online, but only in an unindexed vacuum. A content creator or original poster may be able to see the content they uploaded, but online platforms would prevent other users from knowing where to find it or how to share it. EFF said the petitioners seek a narrow interpretation of Section 230 that would drastically erode the significant benefits Congress sought in enacting the statute. The nonprofit also said that striking down 230 protections for platforms would lead to an increase in censorship. Any narrowing of Section 230's immunity would lead online platforms to either pre-screen or remove after the fact any user content that may be even remotely problematic to mitigate their legal exposure, the brief said. Pre-screening is particularly worrisome as it would prevent content from being published in the first place, ending the unique ability of anyone with an internet connection to communicate with others around the world cheaply, easily, and quickly. The brief argued that Section 230, outside of protecting speech online, provides a legal incentive for companies to keep protected speech online during the threat of legal action, and that the court's decision could make platforms more likely to cave under the pressure of a lawsuit. Section 230 also ensures that online intermediaries have strong legal incentives to keep protected speech online in the face of a person's threat to sue over a particular piece of user speech, the brief said. Yet, under petitioner's legal theory, there is an increased risk to keeping user-generated content up in the face of such legal threats. Thus, intermediaries would be more likely to remove the content at issue rather than investigating resources and investigating or fighting the complaint. Section 230 has been a hot issue in recent years for politicians on both sides of the aisle. Politicians from Representative Marjorie T Taylor Greene to President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump have all come out with plans to either reform or completely strip Section 230. In March of 2022, a group of strippers walked off the job in Los Angeles, drawing national attention in their bid to become the country's only unionized strip club. Now the striking dancers of Star Garden Topless Dive Bar in North Hollywood may finally be close to winning their union. In December, the National Labor Relations Board, or the NLRB, said in a complaint that the dancers had been unlawfully fired and locked out for raising safety concerns. Next month, the NLRB is expected to seek the dancers' reinstatement in a hearing. 
This all bodes well for the dancers' union election, which was held in the fall but stalled after the strip club owners contested most of the ballots, claiming that the dancers aren't employees. If they win, Stargarden Dancers will join the union Actors' Equity and will become the first strip club to unionize since dancers at the now-closed Lusty Lady unionized in San Francisco in 1997. Velveeta, one of the Stargarden Dancers and a leader of the union drive, told Jacobin Magazine that she's confident they'll win their election and return to the club as union dancers. Velveeta said, Marginalized workers have a lot at stake, and that leads to some really innovative, creative, resourceful solutions to problems, because there's not as much support at hand. So like, for us, early on, we had to be creative in creating an environment on the picket line that would draw people in. We had to use the skills that we had gained on the job as entertainers and hosts to bring people out. With some other fights, people are more comfortable with the work, and it's sometimes more self-explanatory to bring people out onto the picket line. It's important to really have an ear out for what solutions marginalized workers are coming up with, and then also to support them. She continued, We want to address our safety concerns. Also high on our priority list is fixing the racist discrimination in hiring and treatment at work. We also want to put in protections for gender diversity and disability, and protections for immigrants. There are a lot of undocumented workers within the sex industry, and unions can protect undocumented workers. We want to get paid a fair wage and get a fair cut of lap dances. Right now, the club takes 50% of our lap dance earnings, so there's a lot of improvement to be had there. Beyond that, just cause firing is something that we expect to have in our contract so that we don't have to worry about being fired arbitrarily. And that's just a starter list. In Johnson City, Tennessee, on the day of Tyree Nichols' funeral and the first day of Black History Month, police in the southern tier clashed with protesters at Wigman's. What began as a simple gathering at a local shopping plaza quickly descended into chaos as attendees were confronted by a battalion of law enforcement officers from at least four regional departments. Those who had gathered were there to draw attention to a recent incident in police brutality in Binghampton and several high-profile police killings that occurred during the month of January, including the beating and murder of Tyree Nichols. Nichols, 29, died January 10th after sustaining what can only be described as a modern lynching from half a dozen Memphis police officers known as the Scorpion Unit. Five of the officers involved were eventually charged with the murder following public outcry. Wednesday, as protesters gathered outside the store, they were quickly met with hostility from the large group of Johnson City police and police from neighboring municipalities. Several minutes into the demonstration, the group, including students and the elderly, were pepper-sprayed and arrested. A standing army of roughly 100 officers were on the scene within minutes, including dogs from the canine unit. At least 14 attendees were arrested. Among them was former Mayor Matt Ryan and at least one Binghampton University professor. Multiple members of the press were also arrested and or pepper sprayed by law enforcement. All were released and charged with minor offenses, including trespassing and resisting arrest. The family of slain civil rights leader Malcolm X marked the anniversary of his 1965 assassination by announcing plans to sue agencies, including the CIA, FBI, the New York Police Department, and others for $100 million, accusing them of playing a role in his death. Two of his daughters, Ilyasa and Kabila Shabazz, were joined by attorney Ben Crump at a news conference at the site of the former Audubon Ballroom in Upper Manhattan, where Malcolm X was fatally shot as a crowd gathered to hear him speak on February 21, 1965. For decades, questions have circulated over who was responsible for his death. Three men were convicted, but two were exonerated in 2021 after a renewed investigation into the cases against them showed the evidence used to gain convictions was shaky and that authorities held back some information. Ilyasa, the co-administrator of her father's estate, 
filed notices of claim, which is the first step in the process, saying that the agencies, quote, conspired with each other and with other individuals and acted and failed to act in such a way as to bring about the wrongful death of Malcolm X. For years, our family has fought for the truth to come to light, she said at the news conference. We want justice served for our father. In a federal lawsuit filed earlier this week, a family member of Emmett Till is demanding that LaFleur County Sheriff Ricky Banks serve an arrest warrant from 1955 on Carolyn Bryant Donham for her role in the lynching of Till. Last year, a five-member search group, including members of Till's family, found an unserved 1955 arrest warrant for Bryant in the basement of the LaFleur County Courthouse. This shows the corruption and full lack of intent to actually follow through in this case and arrest Carolyn Bryant by LaFleur County. Till, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago, was visiting family in Mississippi when he had his fateful encounter with then-20-year-old Carolyn Bryant. Accounts from the day differ, but witnesses alleged Emmett whistled at Bryant, now Donham, at the market she owned with her husband in Money, Mississippi. Later, her husband, Roy Bryant, and J.W. Millam took Till from his bed and ordered him into the back of a pickup truck and beat him before shooting him in the head and tossing his body into the Tallahatchie River. They were both acquitted of murder following a trial in which Carolyn Bryant lied under oath testifying that Emmett grabbed and verbally threatened her. In 2007, a Mississippi grand jury declined to indict Bryant on any charges. It was Carolyn Bryant's lie that sent Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam into a raid, which resulted in the mutilation of Emmett Till's body into an unrecognizable condition. The newly filed lawsuit states, The LaFleur County Sheriff is complicit in the trio's escape from justice, even though both Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam admitted to the crime. It continued, To this day, the warrant issued for Carolyn Bryant remains unserved. Carolyn Bryant's whereabouts are known. This action is being brought in in order to compel the LaFleur County Sheriff to serve a warrant upon Carolyn Bryant and added, Haymarket Books, a Chicago-based publishing house, will offer free ebooks focused on Black history after the College Board revised its Advanced Placement African American Studies course earlier this month in response to criticisms made in a letter sent by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' administration to the College Board rejecting the new Advanced Placement African American Studies course. In a letter sent in January to Brian Barnes, Senior Director of the College Board Florida Partnership, the Florida Department of Education said, Quote, the content of this course is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. In the future, should College Board be willing to come back to the table with lawful, historically accurate content, FDOE will always be willing to reopen the discussion. The letter, signed by the Department's Office of Articulation, did not name the law that the course violated or what part of the curriculum it was objecting to, but was likely in reference to Florida's Stop Woke Act banning schools from teaching critical race theory which is a cross-disciplinary examination by social and civil rights scholars and activists of how laws, social and political movements, and the media shape and are shaped by social conceptions of race and ethnicity. Goals include challenging all mainstream and alternative views of racism and racial justice, including conservative, liberal, and progressive. The word critical in the name is an academic reference to critical thinking, critical theory, and scholarly criticism, rather than criticizing or blaming people. Critical race theory is also used in sociology to explain social, political, and legal structures and power distributions as through a, quote, lens focusing on the concept of race and experiences of racism. Despite most experts on the subject having said that it is not taught in elementary or high schools, opposition to the concept has become a rallying cry for Republicans who are looking to rewrite America's history of racism and use it as a pretext to ban any books on racism 
and civil rights from classics such as To Kill a Mockingbird to even more modern texts such as the critically acclaimed Mouse, a graphic novel depicting the horrors of the Holocaust. Last year, DeSantis signed legislation called the Stop Woke Act, which restricts how racism can be taught in schools. The law, which stands for Stop Wrong to Our Kids and Employees, prohibits any instruction that could make someone feel, quote, personally responsible for historic wrongdoings because of their race, sex, or national origin. This year, in response to the letter from DeSantis, the College Board has revised the original interdisciplinary course, which is being piloted in 60 schools around the nation this school year, including lessons on black queer studies, the Black Lives Matter movement, black feminist literary thought, the reparations movement, and the black struggle in the 21st century. But a new framework released Wednesday noticeably removed black queer studies from its coursework, along with the black writers and scholars associated with critical race theory. The topic of Black Lives Matter is now optional, and black conservatism has been introduced as a potential research subject. To wake up on this first day of Black History Month to the news of white men in positions of privilege, horse trading essentials, and inextricably linked parts of black history, which is American history, is infuriating said David J. Johns, executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition. Johns said the college board had capitulated to DeSantis's extremist anti-black censorship and that the new course is an insult to the lived experiences of millions of black Americans across the nation, including their ancestors and their legacy. The assault on my existence feels like gaslighting, he said. The distortions of fact-based truths and suppression of how beautifully diverse black people have built this country for free should infuriate everyone who purports to care about democracy. The lives, contributions, and stories of black, trans, queer, and non-binary, non-conforming people matter and should not be diminished or erased, he added. Black history has always been queer. You cannot teach black history while erasing members of our community and the contributions made to our community in this country. Now... Haymarket Books, a radical publisher of politics, culture, and current event, said that DeSantis and the complicit college board has left it with no choice. The racist governor of Florida continues to escalate his attacks on the freedom to learn and teach history, the publishing house said in a press release last week. We at Haymarket stand in solidarity with all those in Florida and across the country who are organizing to resist. We know that books can be dangerous to those in power, especially when they are in the hands of folks who are organizing to fight for liberation. That's why we publish them. That's why they're trying to ban them, the company added. Haymarket Books will now offer the following ebooks for free to download. From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamata Taylor, which explores why the Black Lives Matter movement is necessary. Black Lives Matter at School, an Uprising for Educational Justice, edited by Jesse Hagopian and Denisha Jones, which details how the Black Lives Matter movement has challenged institutional racism, and 1919 by Eve L. Ewing, a collection of poems depicting the Chicago race riots of 1919. Black people have always figured out ways to teach our history in spaces beneath, beyond, and betwixt the machinations of people like Ron DeSantis, Ewing said. The only thing he ever got right in his life was understanding how insurgent our stories really are, how threatening to the status quo of a nation built on theft. The company is also looking to provide Florida residents with more radical books to distribute to younger people in the state. These books could include any Haymarket-published works, which range in topic from abolition to black politics to police and prisons to socialism and Marxism. The struggle is long, but we are many, the group said. At least two groups of men with ties to neo-Nazi organizations have been charged in connection to plans to attack power substations, and some of those men have ties to North Carolina. 
The plots were uncovered in 2020 and 2021 and cover numerous states. Three men pleaded guilty to to a 2021 plot in February of 2022, and several men indicted by the Eastern District of North Carolina in a 2020 plot are awaiting trial. Both of these cases involved different groups planning attacks on substations in different states, primarily using high-powered automatic weapons. Other than shared white supremacist ideology, it is not seen that the cases are directly connected. The planning in both of them also share similarities with the attack in Moore County earlier last December, although no group has taken responsibility for the shooting of the two substations in early December of 2022. On December 3rd, two Duke Energy substations were attacked with high-powered rifles by unknown suspects. No group or ideology has claimed responsibility for the attack. In the case of the first group, United States of America versus Collins, Krisic, Duncan, and Moreno, in October of 2020, Liam Collins, Paul Krisic, and Jordan Duncan were charged with conspiracy to unlawfully manufacture, possess, and distribute various weapons and weapon accessories. At the time of their arrest, the three men lived in Boise, Idaho. All of the charges came from the Eastern District of North Carolina. Collins and Duncan's were both Marines stationed at Camp Lejeune. Collins was originally from New Jersey, while Duncan was from North Carolina. In November 2020, Justin Wade Hermanson, a North Carolina man who was in the same Marine unit as Collins at Camp Lejeune, was charged with one count of conspiracy to manufacture firearms and ship interstate. After two superseding indictments, he pleaded guilty on March 8, 2022. In June of 2021, Joseph Marino, a New Jersey National Guardsman, was also indicted, accused of supplying untraceable guns to the other men. In August of 2021, Krusik, Collins, Duncan, and Marino received a third superseding indictment. They were charged with conspiracy to damage property of a United States energy facility. The indictment alleges that the four men researched and discussed at length a previous attack on power infrastructure by an unknown group using assault-style rifles. The indictment alleges that for three years, between 2017 and 2020, Krusik manufactured guns and Collins, stationed at Camp Lejeune at the time, stole military gear and had them delivered to the other men. Duncan gathered a library of information, some military-owned, about weapons, toxins, and explosives. The indictment goes into detail about how Collins and Krusik met on Iron March, a now-defunct forum for neo-Nazis to organize and recruit. They moved to encrypted messaging to talk outside of the forum, recruiting the other three accused men. Video footage obtained show the men shooting guns wearing Adam Waffen-style masks while giving Nazi salutes. The phrase, come home white man, is seen in the video. Supposedly, Collins and Duncan moved from North Carolina and Texas, respectively, to Boise, where Krusik relocated in 2020 in order to be closer to him. The most recent document filed in the case against the men was a continuance, granted in early December of 2022. In the case of the second group, United States versus Cook, Frost, and Sawell, in February of 2022, three men pleaded guilty to a plot to attack power substations in multiple states. Court documents indicate that Christopher Cook, Jonathan Frost, and Jackson Salwell pleaded guilty to a count of conspiring to provide material support to terrorists. These three defendants admitted to engaging in a disturbing plot in furtherance of a white supremacist ideology to attack energy facilities in order to damage the economy and stoke division in our country, said Assistant Attorney General for National Security Matthew G. Olson. These defendants conspired to use violence to sow hate, create chaos, and endanger the safety of the American people said U.S. Attorney Kenneth L. Parker for the Southern District of Ohio. The defendants in this case wanted to attack regional power substations and expected the damage would lead to economic distress and civil unrest, said Assistant Director Timothy Langan of the FBI's Counterterrorism Division. These individuals wanted to carry out such a plot because of their adherence to, to racially 
or ethnically motivated violent extremist views. Frost and Cook met in 2019 in an online chat group. Then they began to recruit people to join their plan of attacking power infrastructure, circulating neo-Nazi books. Sawell, a friend of Cook's, joined them in their planning. Each of them was assigned a substation in different parts of the country. They would attack those electrical substations or power grids with high-powered rifles. They discussed how this would cause enough unrest in the country to incite some sort of race war or financial collapse. Social media discussions have raised questions about the Moore County substation attacks, potential ties to a drag performance at Sunrise Theater in Southern Pines that was set to happen on Saturday night, scheduled to start 7 p.m., which is when the sheriff's office said the outages began. Two neo-Nazi banners have been put up on overpasses on US-1 in Moore County, one in the vast area and the other in Cameron. The first was put up in the morning before Hanukkah was set to start, and the second on Christmas. The first banner included the language, Bring It All Down. The telegram channel for this neo-Nazi group, Nationalist Socialist Resistant Fronts, includes graphics with the same language imposed over a graphic of a power substation. The second uses the phrase, A Touch of Death, which doesn't seem to have any specific Nazi ties, and is the title of a pulp noir novel. The sheriff's office said they don't have any indication that these incidents are connected to the power substations. Raw Story reports, however, that the documents that contained instructions on the destruction of power substations had been circulating in neo-Nazi social media spaces in the days before the Moore County attack. Nazis also took to Telegram shortly after the attacks to praise the attacks as reported on a previous episode. Also, interestingly, the three substations were attacked after the Garden's PDF was posted a few days before the attack. The Garden is a document that includes an analysis of a 2013 Metcalf attack where a California substation was shot and damaged, which cost millions and no suspects have been arrested for. There had been an act of vandalism on a power substation in eastern North Carolina just three weeks before the attack in Moore County, when Carteret Craven Electrical Cooperative Equipment was intentionally damaged near Maysville, leaving 12,000 customers without power for a few hours. Social media discussions around the Moore County attack have also brought suspicions of Emily Grace Rainey for having connections to the act of terrorism. Rainey is a former army captain who resigned her commission after receiving a career-ending letter of reprimand for her actions at an earlier protest in the Fort Bragg area, according to CBS. She was under investigation for leading a group of people from North Carolina to the Capitol on January 6th. At about 9 p.m. on Saturday, an account under the name Emily Grace, identified in her bio as Emily Grace Rainey, posted, quote, the power is out in Moore County and I know why. In a second post, just a few minutes later, she shared a picture of a darkened theater with a caption, Sunrise Theater, God Will Not Be Mocked. Around 10.45 p.m., she went on to post that she had spoken to the Moore County Sheriff's Office. The Moore County Sheriff's Office just checked in, she said. I welcomed them to my home. Sorry they wasted their time. I told them that God works in mysterious ways and is responsible for the outage. I used the opportunity to tell them about the immoral drag show and the blasphemies screamed by its supporters. God is chastising Moore County. I thank them for coming and wish them a good night. Thankful for the LEO's service, as always. Around 11.45 p.m., the sheriff's office confirmed that the case was under investigation as an intentional vandalism in an initial post. During a news conference, a reporter asked Sheriff Ronnie Fields, there was somebody on Facebook saying that she was questioned about this. Can you tell me if that's true and where it might have led? To which Fields said, Well, I can say that there was an individual that put some information on Facebook that was false. We did, and I urge the citizens, please don't put out false information out there. 
It takes us time to run that down, and yes, we had to go and interview this young lady and have a word of prayer with her, but it turned out to be nothing. When the reporter followed up, asking how the sheriff's office determined the Facebook posts were false, the sheriff answered, good law enforcement. In a statement Tuesday, Rainey said, whoever did this cowardly act to our community should be punished to the fullest extent of the law. Also, to blame any person or group before the investigation has completed is ignorant and irresponsible. Rainey has also claimed on her Facebook that she intends to pursue libel charges against people accusing her of involvement in the attack. A now-deleted post shared on Facebook accused the Proud Boys, claiming that they also created fake traffic stops to target people leaving the Sunrise Theater. This allegation and reports of looting have not been confirmed by the sheriff's office at this time. Rainey's social media presence indicates that she frequents or amplifies anti-drag show protests, including, quote, going undercover at them. On Steve Bannon's War Room, she described herself as a leader of a conservative group called Moore County Citizens for Freedom. In October, she was photographed by photographer Anthony Kreider posing for selfies with the Cape Fear Proud Boys at a drag event in Sanford, with a group of Proud Boys flashing the OK hand gesture that the Anti-Defamation League describes as an expression of white supremacy. A photo of Rainey taken at an unknown event posing with Sheriff Ronnie Fields has also been shared on Facebook. During an interview on The War Room on Monday, Rainey talked about Rainey talked about her protest against the drag show. She takes credit for the organizers' decision to change the age restrictions and calls the show adult entertainment and compared it to a red light district. The organizers have repeatedly said that the drag show was not adult entertainment and that these claims are misconceptions about the nature of drag shows. Rainey and Bannon talk about having a prayer protest from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Bannon asks her to describe the antics of the counter-protesters, and she calls them demonic. They did not address the attack or the allegations specifically against Rainey in the short interview, but Bannon said that they would follow up on Tuesday. At a press conference held the Sunday after the attack, a reporter asked directly, Sheriff, what is the connection of the acts of vandalism to the drag show? Is there a connection there? No, not that I'm aware of. Is it possible? Yes, anything is possible, but we've not been able to tie anything back to the drag show, Sheriff Fields responded. Despite the lack of a confirmed connection, the backlash to the drag show and the timing of the attack has left the LGBTQ community of North Carolina on edge amid increasing hostility at events. In late November, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security released a report warning the country that there was a heightened risk of domestic terrorism, particularly against the LGBTQ plus and Jewish communities. This warning came in the wake of threats against synagogues in New York and the mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs. In June, a small handful of protesters showed up to a drag queen story hour in Winston-Salem. A few weeks later, uniformed Proud Boys arrived at a similar event in Wilmington. In October, they participated in a protest in Sanford. Then a few weeks later, they showed up to a drag brunch hosted by Naomi Dix in Rally at Umami Bistro. After Downtown Divas changed their age restrictions, no longer allowing kids or teens to come accompanied by an adult, Sources say that Cape Fear Proud Boys claimed they would back down. Local church groups still expressed a desire to protest. The power outage didn't stop the event at Sunrise Theater. Videos shared on Twitter show that the show went on with patrons using their cell phone flashlights to illuminate the stage. Naomi Dix gave an impromptu, encouraging speech to the crowd. Sadly, these types of attacks have not been isolated to infrastructure, as assaults and murders on the queer population has skyrocketed in recent years in both the U.S. and the U.K. In London, two schoolchildren have been charged with murder following the death of a 16-year-old transgender girl in an English village. 
A boy and a girl, both aged 15, have been charged with the murder of Brianna Gray, who was found dead in a park in Warrington in the country's northwest. Members of the public contacted the emergency services at 3.13 p.m. that day after Gray's body was found on a path in Linear Park in the village of Coolcheth. Police said she was found with fatal stab wounds. Police initially said there was no evidence to suggest the circumstances surrounding Gray's death was hate-related, before later adding that all the lines of inquiry were being explored, including whether this was a hate crime. After news of Gray's death broke, her family issued a heartfelt statement through Cheshire Constabulary, the police force investigating the crime. Brianna was a much-loved daughter, granddaughter, and baby sister. She was a larger-than-life character who would leave a lasting impression on all that met her. Brianna was a beautiful, witty, and hilarious. Brianna was strong, fearless, and one of a kind. The loss of her young life has left a massive hole in our family, and we know that the teachers and her friends who were involved in her life will feel the same. We would like to thank everyone for their kind words and support during this extremely difficult time. We would like to thank the police for their support and witnesses for helping with the investigation. The continuation of respect for privacy is greatly appreciated. We would also like to reiterate the family's request for privacy at this extremely difficult and distressing time. This is all following a growing tidal wave of anti-trans and drag proposed legislation in both the UK and US meant to target the trans community, such as in a wild new bill in Florida that rolls back defamation protections, making it legal defamation to accuse someone of transphobic discrimination. HB 991 states that, Defamation, false light, and unauthorized publication of name or likenesses provides that a journalist's privilege does not apply to the defamation claims when a defendant is a professional journalist or media entity, revises provisions concerning venues for certain actions, provides for attorneys' costs and fees for prevailing plaintiffs in certain actions, specifies certain persons may not be considered public figures, provides certain allegations are defamatory per se, provides statutory damages to prevailing plaintiffs who are the subject of such allegations, creates presumptions that statement by anonymous sources is presumptively false, provides a public figure does not need to show actual malice to prevail in defamation action. This would result in any instance of an individual or group within Florida to be sued for $35,000 by the party who engaged in the transphobic discrimination. In Oklahoma, bans are now pushing beyond sexualization rhetoric and are now explicitly targeting drag queen story hours as a front for targeting the trans community. Oklahoma House Bill 2186 was heard this month. It explicitly spells out drag queen story hour and says they would be banned. As written, it explicitly bans reading to kids in flamboyant makeup. Kentucky has apparently created a new bill, House Bill 470, that is basically all of the anti-trans bills in 2023 in one bill. Birth certificate bans, gender-affirming gender affirming care bans, name change bans, forced outing. It, it targets insurance coverage. It, it has everything. There have been roughly over 330 of these bills proposed to various degrees of severity and success. Roughly 200 of these were in February alone and counting. So-called allies need to understand where we are at. How the groomer rhetoric has put words to action with these bills and the acts of terrorism against the queer community. It's eliminationist. It is the groundwork for genocide. People like Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who just lost a $3.3 million lawsuit against four of his former staffers for corruption, and whose lawyer has tried to push that bill on the taxpayers, might I add, wants a list of trans people who have changed their names in Texas so he can reverse all of those decisions. 
Ron DeSantis wants lists of college students who have seek gender-affirming care so he can detransition them by force. As you have heard in this and prior episodes, multiple states have passed or will pass bills that target the trans community in any way they can, including bans on legal name changes, barricades and bans on health care, including medically safe puberty blockers for children, rollbacks on discrimination laws, or slipping language into anti-drag bills that ban anyone from displaying, presenting, or dressing outside of their genders assigned at birth in public. There was even a bill proposed in North Dakota with questionable language about DNA gender. This is all about legally and morally mandating trans people out of existence, plain and simple. It's about making sure trans people cannot exist, period. It's not about reactionary calls for medical restrictions or save the children rhetoric. It's about eliminating the queer community from public life and then eliminating them from private life until there is no options left but conformity or death. Trans people are not a political football that the right will give up on in a few election cycles. This wave of backlash against the queer community comes from singularly focused reactionary ideologies. They don't give a shit about the marketplace of ideas, they don't give a shit if they get mocked on Twitter in late night shows, and they certainly don't give a shit if anybody gets hurt in the crossfire. They only, they only care about one thing, power. Gaining and wielding enough of it until they can finally meet their end goal of genocidal elimination of trans people. Then the gays, women who don't conform to their gender stereotypes, etc. As the poem goes, they used to say, first they came for the communists, but this does not reflect the entirety of what happened then, and it doesn't reflect the entirety of what's happening now. Both DeSantis's and Trump's attacks on LGBTQ rights have escalated as they look to gain momentum for their presidential campaigns. As Republicans increasingly move to ban books with content involving race and sexuality, enact stronger controls over sex education, and ban trans youth from, from participating in school sports that align with their gender identity, I would ask people to look to what happened in Germany in 1933. Germany was a cultural hub for the queer community, and in fact, one of the best places in the world you could be if you were part of the queer community. It was in Berlin, Germany, where the Hirschfeld Institute of Sexual Science was founded and innovated in gender studies and the first medical transitions in history. Magnus Hirschfeld and the Institute were very involved with activism in Germany for queer rights, such as working to get homosexuality legalized in Germany. But this is Germany in the 1930s, and you already know where this is going. Already in 1921, Magnus Hirschfeld was assaulted in the street by the far right for their activism and their prominent status as a gay activist. And in the 1930s, he was forced into exile in Switzerland after a lot of far-right magazines were using him as an example of the, quote, degenerate Jewish side. The institute, now led by Hirschfeld's partner Karl Geist, who in 1933 witnessed the Nazis take power, and in May of that year, a bunch of Nazi-supporting students, followed by the members of the SA, led a raid on the institute, taking papers, documents, scientific studies, and many, many more documents. The institute was initially occupied by the German Student Union, who were a collective of Nazi-supporting youth. Several days later, on the 10th of May, the entire contents of the library were removed to Berlin's Bebelplatz Square. That night, along with 20,000 other books across Germany, they were publicly burned in a symbolic attack by Nazi officials on their enemies in front of members of the institute, where many members were assaulted. In a time before the internet, this resulted in an unfathomable loss of information that is still being rediscovered today. Among the texts thrown into the bonfire at the Babelplatz was Heinrich Heine's Almansor, in which the author noted, quote, Where they burn books, in the end they will burn humans too. 
The left-wing gender insanity being pushed on our children is an act of child abuse. Very simple. Here's my plan to stop the chemical, physical, and emotional mutilation of our youth. On day one, I will revoke Joe Biden's cruel policies on so-called gender-affirming care. Ridiculous. A process that includes giving kids puberty blockers, mutating their physical appearance, and ultimately performing surgery on minor children. Can you believe this? I will sign a new executive order instructing every federal agency to cease all programs that promote the concept of sex and gender transition at any age. I will then ask Congress to permanently stop federal taxpayer dollars from being used to promote or pay for these procedures and pass a law prohibiting child sexual mutilation in all 50 states. It'll go very quickly. I will declare that any hospital or healthcare provider that participates in the chemical or physical mutilation of minor youth will no longer meet federal health and safety standards for Medicaid and Medicare and will be terminated from the program immediately. Furthermore, I will support the creation of a private right of action for victims to sue doctors who have unforgivably performed these procedures on minor children. The Department of Justice will investigate Big Pharma and the big hospital networks to determine whether they have deliberately covered up horrific long-term side effects of sex transitions in order to get rich at the expense of vulnerable patients, in this case, very vulnerable. We will also investigate whether Big Pharma or others have illegally marketed hormones and puberty blockers, which are in no way licensed or approved for this use. My Department of Education will inform states and school districts that if any teacher or school official suggests to a child that they could be trapped in the wrong body, they will be faced with severe consequences, including potential civil rights violations for sex discrimination and the elimination of federal funding. As part of our new credentialing body for teachers, we will promote positive education about the nuclear family, the roles of mothers and fathers, and celebrating rather than erasing the things that make men and women different and unique. I will ask Congress to pass a bill establishing that the only genders recognized by the United States government are male and female, and they are assigned at birth. The bill will also make clear that Title IX prohibits men from participating in women's sports, and we will protect the rights of parents from being forced to allow their minor child to assume a gender which is new and an identity without the parent's consent. The identity will not be new, and it will not be without parental consent. No serious country should be telling its children that they were born with the wrong gender, a concept that was never heard of in all of human history. Nobody's ever heard of this, what's happening today. It was all when the radical left invented it just a few years ago. Under my leadership, this madness will end. Thank you very much. Perhaps the most terrifying aspect of all of this is that they wouldn't need legislation to do most of this. DeSantis, in particular, has used administrative processes to try and ban gender-affirming care. They'll weaponize the administrative state and turn it into an arm of the reactionary far-right. If Trump or DeSantis are elected in 2024, they will politicize and weaponize the FDA to pull the authorization and ban HRT. 
They'll weaponize Homeland Security and the Department of Education to eliminate all discussion of queer people from federally funded entities, including private organizations. Now more than ever, we must do everything we can to protect marginalized communities. Marginalized people are often excluded by proxy from being able to safely access the same gun stores and ranges as their cis white hetero counterparts. So if you have the means, please offer free weapons training and courses to your community or purchase. So if you have the means, please, there's much you can do to help marginalized people within your community. You can offer weapons training and courses to those excluded from these spaces. You can purchase guns or other weapons and give them to trans or other marginalized people. And you can utilize mutual aid organizations to help support these communities. If you need help in organizing these type of events, please reach out to your closest chapter of the John Brown Gun Club, the Socialist Rifle Association, or a handful of other politically diverse gun clubs run by marginalized communities such as the Pink Pistols. Armed minorities keep our communities safe. Next up, our Radical News Roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. February 1st, Jackson Heights New York City Drag Story Hour Draws Defenders, Homophobes. February 3rd, Mississippi Police Arrest Protesters Seeking Transparency in Police Killing of Teenager. Also February 3rd, U.S. Department of Interior Halfway Through Road to Healing Tour. February 6th, Jordan Peterson's visit to Minneapolis draws criticism. February 7th, the case of Marvin Haynes, Part 1, and Manuel Tortaguita, Tehran's family, seeks transparency in police killing. February 8th, Dakota 38 plus 2 run commemorates hanging of Dakota ancestors. And Atlanta PD releases body cam footage from deadly January 18th forest raid. February 9th, Harris County jail crisis in Houston, Texas kills dozens. February 10th, families in Gaza live among the dead. And jury convicts Robert West for his role in dismembering Ricky Balsamo. February 13th, like the doors of hell were open, East Palestine train disaster casts toxic cloud over future of Ohio, Pennsylvania region. February 15th, Temple University grad student union strikes rally on campus. And Family of A.J. Stewart speak on patterns of white supremacy that led to his killing over a parking spot. February 17th, indigenous people demonstrate at Super Bowl demanding Kansas City drop its team name, Chiefs. February 18th, woman, life, freedom. Iran is undergoing a revolutionary process. February 19th, an arsenic plume rests beneath the surface of the upcoming roof depot demolition. February 20th, over 100 families occupy abandoned apartment complex in Brazil. February 21st, Minneapolis March connects roof depot demolition resistance to the Atlanta forest. And indigenous-led occupation begins at roof depot site demanding city hall call-off demolition. February 22nd. No English, don't shoot. St. Paul police kill elder Hmong war hero. February 23rd. The case of Marvin Haynes, part 2. The murder, the murder of Randy Scherer. February 24th. Supporters of Cop City opponents rally in Philly. And... Quote unquote community committee cheers police violence as authorities repress resistance to Cop City. February 25th, Atlanta activists say prosecutors plan to indict them on RICO charges. 
February 26th, FBI harasses activists in Florida, two indicted on federal charges for Jane's revenge actions. And February 28th, activists fight against criminalization of homelessness in New Haven. It's going down, and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. February 1st, in contempt number 25, Texas hunger strike enters third week. Repression in Atlanta, Eric King prepares for release. February 9th, Canadian Tire Fire number 53, Bail reform for the worse, drug decriminalization, and prison construction updates. And call for art and essay submissions for 2024 certain days, freedom for political prisoner calendar. And Jen Angel passes on as Bay Area community rallies in support. February 10th, DC rallies against Wells Fargo, Cox Enterprises support for Cop City. And University of Michigan career fair disrupted over military recruiter. February 12th, Anarchists in Mexico City show solidarity with Alfredo Cuspido. February 13th, This is America, number 181, interview with Vishal Singh on growing gender fascist attacks, roundup of resistance to Cop City. February 15th, Neo-Nazi groipers who want to spit on the graves of Holocaust victims face resistance on Florida campuses. From the Grouch. February 19th, Neo-Nazis who organize deadly Unite the Right rally claim they're in communication with anti-war protest leaders in D.C. February 20th, Cop City protesters rally outside homes of Georgia senators in D.C. from Iron Snowflake. And, tree sit blockade and hunger strike launched in defense of Redwoods in Humboldt. And, Georgia Tech students rally and march against Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. And, community holds back group of violent Proud Boys from attacking kids in event in Silver Spring, Maryland. February 21st, Community Notice Regarding FBI Harassment and Indictment by Puget Sound Anarchists. February 22nd, Protesters Rally Against Cop City Outside Brassfield and Gory Office in Miami, Florida by the Iron Snowflake. And Mexico, Update on Anarchist Political Prisoner Jorge York Esquivel. February 23rd, Report on Minneapolis Police Raid of Roof Depot Occupation by East Phillips Residents. February 24th, Tenants Union march into offices of Transport Quebec to demand end to evictions by the Montreal Autonomous Tenants Union. February 17th, as pressure mounts against Cop City, mass mobilization announced March 4th through the 11th. And organizations across Ohio mobilized to provide mutual aid to residents of East Palestine, Ohio. February 21st, This is America number 182, report from East Palestine, week of action kicks off to stop Cop City. February 22nd, Canadian Tire Fire number 54, police killings, fighting police budgets, Atlanta solidarity. February 27th, experiences in Thurston County Jail and thoughts towards tearing it all down. And, it's going down, takes over, it could happen here. Crime thought is everything that evades control. Crime think is a rebel alliance. CrimeThink is a banner for anonymous, collective action. CrimeThink is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. CrimeThink is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at CrimeThink.com. January 28th, a new series, audio versions of CrimeThink articles, brought to you by the X Worker Podcast. February 3rd, 
Solidarity with Alfredo Caspito, an Italian anarchist on hunger strike against solitary confinement. February 10th, We Remember Jen Angel, a eulogy. February 19th, The Uprising in Peru. Anarchists discuss the revolt against police violence and the state of emergency. February 22nd, The Forest in the City, Two Years of Forest Defense in Atlanta, Georgia. And February 28th, Balance Sheet, Two Years Against Cop City, Evaluating Strategies, Refining Tactics. That's all we could fit into the news this month. When we return, we will be discussing an article by the Harbor Rat Report about the nonprofit industrial complex. We hope you can use these additional media resources from publishers such as Unicorn Riot, It's Going Down, and Crime Think to better follow movements on the ground and stay better informed on the stories legacy media won't properly cover. Knowledge is a weapon, and as tensions with the rising fascist tide escalate, we know you will be looking for all the tools you can to defend yourself with. So until we return, we bring you the riot folk of Ryan Harvey and their song, If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Hit it! Damn cats! Sorry about that, folks. Here's Ryan Harvey, If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Baghdad, a worldwide war. The tactic of destruction is a double-bladed sword. As the contracts hit the billions, the billions hit the streets. In protest of the slaughter, getting slaughtered by police, we grow to love our neighbors and stab them in the back. In a crooked game of power, the deck that's always stacked, the ghost to struggle through your labor just to find your place in line. The profiteers repeat the pattern, holding down rewind. The foreground so destructive, think what's happening behind. If I had a rocket launcher, if I had a rocket launcher. If I had a rocket launcher, if I had a rocket launcher, my place would be defined. Watch the television, see the headlines now and then Slogan after slogan, repeating the refrain We trust these movie stars of media Fetishizing fame as little tidbits of reality Go flashing across the screen, they say that everything is even All following the plan, the dead are stacked in piles Being bulldozed in the sand, there's nothing different about it It's just like all the rest, limbless children without parents Homeless cancer-ridden vets, they try to cloak it all in logos Each day another myth, the news reporters smile Gaining stories from the death, what they did to Southeast Asia They are doing here today and if I had a rocket launcher 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 I would make some people pay down at Central 
social booking in the overcrowded cells. The poor housed together, fending for themselves against the prison guards' union. The criminals with keys calling punishment, correction, doing anything they please. Locked away inside this concrete cage, all hope is torn apart. So guards complete the cycle, breaking down the human heart until the verdict is not guilty. The final lever's pulled, and the circle is unbroken, and the cells are always full. You know the war across the ocean. Well, here's the one at home. From the ghetto to graveyard, the path is set in stone. The duty done by prisons is maintaining poverty. And if I had a rocket launcher, 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 I'd abolish slavery. Slowly, sometimes dangerously still Each day a new beginning finds you Staring up the hill Another war, another clear cut Another killer cop A society collapsing With the ticking of the clock You'd think there'd never be an outlet Never something so immense Could break the spell of silence And the deeds it represents But between the benefactors And the people beaten back It's evident by history That something's gonna crack And when it does, there's only action The changing of the hands Aggression laying waste All the best laid plans And don't blame me if I'm smiling When it all comes crashing down and if I had a rocket launcher 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 I would make you second count Welcome back to Molotov Now. So, sherri have you had to deal with CCAP for housing vouchers, rental assistance, help navigating state services? Or any other nonprofit or state services like food banks, food stamps, or anything like that? Not personally, other than the food banks and food stamps. I have had major issues navigating state bureaucracy. It, it's just a lot to deal with. But I have watched so many in our community and on our streets who do interact with these entities and services on a daily basis, such as the Coastal Community Action Program. I have to say, despite what services they offer the community and what good they have offered the impoverished in hard times, it is more often than not a system built to exploit workers and filter who in the community gets access to those very services, often preventing those most in need from life-saving support. Yeah, you got to do that means testing, figure out who really needs help. So what were your experiences in getting those food access services? Well, that's just the thing. Means testing is its own evil, but even if you've passed the tests, you face other barriers. Do you have an inability to go into the office and need to do your food stamp application remotely? They'll give you the option, but I'll be damned if I've ever gotten them to answer the phone. Instead, I have to go to their office and wait four hours in their lobby. There are lots of ways they can install artificial barriers while giving the impression that progress is being made. Especially with housing and rental assistance. Even if you're an ideal candidate, you can still be waiting for years before actually receiving any assistance, if at all, all while constantly being told that you're the next on the list. Even if you're at the top of their list, you can wait for years and years, which can often be a death sentence for those with nowhere to wait but the streets. I personally watched people who wasted away on the streets and passed away due to exposure after years of being on top of their list because of this neglect by nonprofits like CCAP. I can think of too many examples, to be honest. One of our good friends, who had been on the streets a long time before we met him, died waiting on that list. He was an old-timer that had been here since before the days of the old river camp, which was torn down in 2019. He had already been waiting on for housing from CCAP for some time before the Shayless River Mutual Aid Network 
had been doing what they could to assist him. Yeah, they helped him get around as he was wheelchair-bound, including nightly rides to the cold-weather shelter in operation last year. They provided heaters for his tent and were always helpful in cleaning and bandaging his feet, which suffered from years of untreated frostbite while he was waiting for housing in the tents. He met with his case manager regularly and was old and disabled enough to be at the very top of their list when a housing unit came through. But that's what is lacking around here. Available, affordable housing. And he suffered immensely in that camp behind City Hall waiting for a unit. One only became available just as he died. It was horrible knowing that he was about to get that place just when he died. Unfortunately, stories like this are far too common. Where those who did all that was asked of them die because help was provided too little, too late. Well, I'm glad we've grounded this conversation in our local reality and the fact that this is a life and death issue for people. The article we're covering today is by Possum from the Harbor Rat Report, and it is titled Aberdeen and the Nonprofit Industrial Complex How the National System of Poverty Management Manifests in Our Local Nonprofit Sector. Let's begin. From Possum Humans are, to our core, cooperative creatures. The anarchist and anthropologist, born Pyotr Alexevich Kropotkin, more commonly called Peter Kropotkin, charted this fundamental human instinct, the mutual aid instinct, throughout human history and into his modern day, the turn of the 20th century. Arguing against social Darwinian logic, he demonstrated how cooperation provided the true evolutionary advantage. He demonstrated how it has, and continues to, aid in humanity's continued survival and advancement as a species. Is social Darwinism supposed to be distinct from biological evolution? Yeah, and whereas Darwin's theory of biological evolution is considered accepted science, the application of the biological concepts of natural selection and survival of the fittest to social, economic, and political realms is seen as pseudoscience. The social Darwinist holds that the rich and powerful have their elevated status by means of selection by a natural process. These ideas originated in the 1870s in the Western world and went on to influence such ideas as eugenics, fascism, racism, and imperialism. It was also a large influence on the Nazi party and thus largely discredited along with their fall. Huh. It turns out you cannot apply biological frameworks to social constructs like hierarchy. Hey, that reminds me. Eat a dick, Matt Walsh. In contrast, mutual aid shows us that humans are social creatures who value cooperation and prioritize the well-being of the community over any individual within it. Everything else is the artificial imposition of a human construct. The article goes on. Over time, humans have been increasingly alienated from this true nature. We are pit against one another in arbitrary competitions for artificially scarce resources. Yet still mutual aid continues, often most visibly amongst the most oppressed. This continues to be true wherever there are oppressed and impoverished communities, or communities in a state of emergency. Yeah, as we have seen over the last few decades, the state will not provide for its citizens' needs. It is up to us to provide for each other. Outside the traditional avenues of commerce, this has been shown to be our true nature, anarchic and cooperative. Everything else is a human construct meant to imbalance this egalitarian nature towards mutual aid. This nature is corrupted by the individualist ideologies of modern Western thought, such as the logic of capitalism, which makes a person earn their living as if they weren't entitled to be alive to begin with. Yes, what a horrible saying that we take for granted. The basic necessities of life should be free to all. The article goes on. In the wake of the George Floyd uprising and the COVID-19 pandemic, thousands of independent grassroots mutual aid efforts were started by organizers all over the country that saw the need that wasn't being filled by the corporate nonprofit agencies. 
This need was apparent when George Floyd called out for his mother as the knee of Derek Chauvin bore down on his neck. Because police are called to all manner of incidents where they don't belong, where community intervention and de-escalation would suffice. It was apparent when the people took to the streets in the wake of the killing, only to find the streets of our cities are already full of unhoused people, cast out after our national housing crisis. The need was apparent when fires broke out on the West Coast and there was no institutional help for thousands as they were displaced or affected by the smoke. The need became perhaps most apparent when the pandemic hit and our so-called leaders did nothing to stem the virus. During all of these manufactured crises, there were everyday people willing to lend some aid to their fellow human. People stepping up to make masks or sanitizer, cook and distribute food, and come up with ingenious ways to protect themselves and their communities from these threats. So this was the period of time in which Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network was founded. Food Not Bombs started delivering food to the Autonomous Zone in Seattle, then brought that abundance back to town and started serving in the park here shortly after. It is awesome to see how much it has grown in that short amount of time, all that they have accomplished. We have seen our own local instances of this manufacturing crisis. For example, when the city removed all the public porta-potties in town and then proceeded to complain about the human waste in the streets. When the river encampment was cleared out and the new complaint became the homeless people camping on the streets of downtown. They'll offer people on the street no place to dump their trash, so that way they can make the new complaint about garbage accumulation on the streets. All of these are examples of the city of Aberdeen manufacturing problems to perpetuate its own existence. It exists today to solve the problems it created yesterday and to create the problems it'll solve tomorrow. This insane cycle only serves to brutalize the most vulnerable and bolster the far-right push towards the eradication of the homeless population. Possum continues, There is another more insidious form of aid, though. One that makes itself seem charitable and good, but actually does nothing but provide cover for the wealthy that impoverishes so many. It provides nothing but a veneer of giving to a system that, in actuality, does nothing but take from us. In the modern spectacle, even this basic human instinct has become perverted to serve the wealthy. According to Forbes, the top corporate charities in 2022 are the United Way Worldwide, Feeding America, and the Salvation Army. For-profit corporations regularly donate to such charities for massive tax write-offs and to approve their public image. By donating large sums of money to nonprofit organizations that they control, either through ownership or by being major donors, the wealthy are able to store their riches outside the reach of the taxman. Many large companies strive to pay as little in taxes as possible. They have multiple schemes to accomplish this, including various types of tax shelters and tax havens. This includes nonprofit charities and foundations, offshore bank accounts, and shell companies. The profits from these companies are shielded from taxation by the United States as the profit often ends up in different bank accounts, not under the U.S. jurisdiction. In 2011, ActionAid reported that 25% of the Financial Times Stock Exchange 100 Index avoided taxation by locating their subsidies in tax havens. This increased to 98% when using the stricter U.S. Congress definition of tax haven and bank secrecy jurisdictions. In 2016, it was reported in the current affairs magazine, Private Eye, that four of the Financial Times Stock Exchange 100 Index top 10 companies had paid no corporation tax at all. And this is a crucial point to make. The connection between for-profit corporations and nonprofits is where the real story lies. This is what creates the nonprofit industrial complex. The profit motive seeps into everything it touches. Okay, so back to the article. Donors give out their funds through foundations in the form of grants, and charitable nonprofits are but one of 32 different types of nonprofit entities. 
charitable nonprofits have to, by necessity, model themselves after for-profit businesses in order to be more appealing to these wealthy donors, in order to compete with other nonprofits for the funding. Naturally, nonprofits can't do anything that remotely seems like it might harm their earnings. These grants dictate exactly how the money will be spent, typically by explicitly designing a new program or position to carry out the will of the wealthy donors and the foundations they control. This reality leads to things like our local nonprofit Coastal Community Action Program refusing to operate a cold weather shelter because it upsets local far right political interests, some of whom serve on the board of directors for the nonprofit. Yeah, for instance, you have the mayor, an anti homeless bigot who serves on the board of the Coastal Community Action Program and the Union Gospel Mission as its president, two of the largest homeless services institutions in town. Coastal Community Action has refused to host a cold weather shelter for years after backlash from the far right due to manufactured concerns and performative outrage. Despite being the largest and best suited local organization to host a cold weather shelter, they bent to the whims of the most hateful people in town, leaving it to the small group, Whole Harbor, who runs the farmer market and community garden, to pick up the contract last year. This year there is no shelter whatsoever though as the anti-homeless base rallied hard against a shelter in the Aberdeen city limits. Nonprofits are subservient to those in power, whether they're funders, their boards, or local politicians. What we need are institutions and structures that are subservient to our will and not to those in positions of power. This is what mutual aid efforts are so good at, empowering local communities. We continue with the article. According to The Revolution Will Not Be Funded by the radical feminist organization Incite, Quote, foundations provide tax shelters for wealthy families and thereby take away tax income that could be used for social programs and entitlements. And then the foundations dole out little bits of money for nonprofits to replace the services that the government no longer funds. The book states, the nonprofit sector is, quote, a trillion dollar industry. The U.S. nonprofit sector is one of the world's largest economies. From art museums and university hospitals to think tanks and church charities, over 1.5 million organizations of staggering diversity share the tax-exempt status 501c3, if little else. On the other hand, many for-profit retail and grocery businesses solicit donations from their customers by asking them to round up to the nearest dollar, giving them more tax-free money. The research of Katie Kelting, Stephanie Robinson, and Richard J. Lutz found that, quote, consumers respond more favorably to a roundup than to a flat donation request, even when the requested amount is identical, at a rate of about 21% more, according to a Marketplace.org article. These additional charges allow companies to take on larger projects they might not otherwise have the resources or infrastructure to accomplish and make larger charitable contributions to write off their taxes. This, the article suggests, is because it gives the consumer a warm glow without the painful financial loss typically associated with donations, forging a sense of loyalty that builds customer retention. Far from being purely out of the goodness of their hearts, these donations serve effectively as PR stunts that allow for-profit companies to raise their prices in a way that makes the customers happy. Soliciting donations with customers also creates loyalty through a psychological loophole wherein the customer feels enabled to do good in the world through the corporation thus making them more likely to purchase from that company in the future. Customers feel like partners in the quest against poverty, hunger, or whichever issue they're being solicited donations for. These donations do nothing to stem the tide of poverty and just contribute to the same complacency that the rest of the system is designed to engender. People think they've done their part by giving this corporation even more money for the goods and services they've already paid for. Yet it is corporate profits that are the cause of the workers' poverty. 
If people were to seize their workplaces and distribute the wealth of the company equally among the workers, then poverty would be abolished. All these charities do is maintain the status quo and possibly push for small reforms in the niche area of concern. I would argue that they don't even really push for reforms so much as adapt to conditions in an attempt to maintain that overall status quo, which is worse in my opinion. They are active in oppressing the very people they claim to serve by handicapping attempts at real revolutionary change. The article goes on. Dean Spade points out in his piece, Solidarity, Not Charity, that the ruling class uses only mere reforms to address the poverty and inequality caused by their wealth. Many reforms, if they do provide any material relief, provide it only to those who are least marginalized within the group of people who were supposed to benefit from the reform, he points out. Quote, For example, immigration reforms that cut out people with criminal records, or who are, quote, public charges, or that take military service or college graduation conditions for relief, are likely to be accessible only to those least targeted by police, those who can pay tuition, those not pushed out of school by ableism and racism. Reforms often merely tinker with existing harmful conditions, failing to reach the root causes. These charities serve as little more than the modern version of giving alms to the poor, purchasing indulgences to get into heaven regardless of one's actual moral fiber or adherence to sacred tradition. They are how the wealthy both boost their public image to be seen as good and noble, absolve themselves of any guilt they may feel for rising rates of poverty across the globe, and PR campaigns to make them seem like virtuous paragons who deserve their wealth, even at the expense of the rest of us. This is the insidious nature of corporate charity. It lets the wealthy people feel good about being wealthy, when in fact it is their hoarded wealth that is the reason people want for anything. We have the means to produce enough for every person on this planet. It is the manufactured scarcity of capitalist markets that keep us from doing so. So by avoiding taxes and sanitizing their public image, the charity model actually works to keep people immiserated and poor. It does help some small percentage of them gain a small foot up while keeping the overall hierarchy intact. The point of the system is to keep things stable for capitalism to grow as it profits. The point is to keep people complacent. Since if the full brunt of capitalism was felt by enough of the population, there would certainly be revolt. This is why the system this is why the system is described as poverty management. It is not creating the poverty necessarily. Capitalism does that. What the nonprofit industrial complex does is carefully manage the segments of the population that have been deemed surplus but who aren't residing within the prison system. Everyone who is outside of the bars but under the boot reliant on the insufficient social services available to them in order to survive. That's fucked, right? And it's another thing we see here locally. People in town who don't know what's going on with the poor or homeless just assume that the social services exist in plenty and are not only available but easy to get. They don't have any idea that the local charities are woefully insufficient at providing for the needs of the community. It stems from an ignorance of the issue and not from malice. Possum continues. These charities do good for individuals, for the mass of people who suffer in order to power capitalist abundance, but are only used as tools, rather than as something that can actually resolve the issues these organizations address. On April 3, 2016, documents detailing the financial and attorney-client information of over 214,488 offshore entities with records going back to the 1970s were leaked to a German journalist from the newspaper Seduce Zeitung. The leak names 12 current or former world leaders, 128 public officials and politicians, and hundreds of celebrities, businessmen, and other wealthy individuals from over 200 countries. In other words, the global elites. 
These, quote, Panama Papers, as they have come to be known, describe the methods through which the members of the global ruling class hide their wealth in trusts and foundations, making them less dependent on nonprofit charities for the same purposes. They describe how elites increasingly use offshore accounts and shell companies to house their wealth, which has caused a steady decline in charitable donations. So if wealthy people are using this charity system less and less to avoid taxes, then how do these nonprofits fund themselves, if no longer through donations? Well, they have found more productive and profitable methods for wealth hoarding and tax avoidance and no longer have to hide their money in charitable contributions or institutions. In the wake of the Panama Papers, more than 80 nations announced investigations that could lead to recovered money, criminal charges, or other consequences. For example, Iceland's prime minister resigned following nationwide protest after revelations that he and his wife owned a company in the British Virgin Islands. Politicians in Mongolia, Spain, and beyond also fell. In 2017, Pakistan's Supreme Court removed from office the country's longest-serving prime minister, Nawaz Sarif, as a result of the Panama Papers' revelations about his family's properties overseas. A year later, he was sentenced in the case to 10 years in prison on corruption charges and fined $10.6 million. Countries have recouped more than $1.36 billion in unpaid taxes, fines, and penalties as a result of inquiries sparked by the Panama Papers, according to ICIJ's latest tally. This is likely a conservative count. ICIJ's total counts only the recovered funds that, we can, that can be verified through official responses from governments. Many nations choose not to publicize the amount of money that has been recovered or comment on ongoing on investigations at all. Ooh, yeah, that's definitely a low count. Yeah, but can you imagine the amount of money being removed from the economy into the hands of wealthy people tax-free? That's incredible. The amount of good that could be done with that money is staggering. Imagine if we reappropriated all the wealth of these people. Anyway, we go on with the article. The funding charities receive comes in the forms of grants. These grants offer money for specific programs and positions the nonprofit charity must adopt in order to receive the money they need to keep their doors open, lights on, and employees paid. It does not take any ill intent for this to corrupt the nonprofit's original mission and slowly cause what is called in the industry mission drift. They also tend to look to their grantors for guidance and seek to impress them. The charities then become little more than wound care, rather than medical professionals who diagnose the source of a problem and take steps to eliminate it. Without changing the underlying structural problems, these companies simply become entrenched institutions maintaining the status quo. Our local nonprofit, CCAP, has become a major power player in town in its short history, gobbling up virtually every grant available and stifling competition. The mayor of the city of Aberdeen is a board member of CCAP, as well as serving as the board president for the Catholic Union Gospel Mission. Mayor Pete Shave was elected on a platform of anti-homeless campaigns while serving on the boards of two of the largest nonprofits dedicated to serving the homeless. This has influenced the decisions of both institutions to not pursue a low-barrier shelter option here in town. The grants they go for determine their mission just as much as they choose which grants to apply for based on local politics and power dynamics. Yeah, the mayor was elected by the same fascist base that has now put many people on city council as well. SOAP, or Save Our Aberdeen Please, acted as a political campaign for those seeking political office from the far right in the city of Aberdeen. These people are what form the electoral base for Pete Shave to get elected, yet he serves on two boards for organizations that are supposed to be helping the very people demonized by this very base. This is a clear conflict of interest that gets ignored because of his status. People in positions of power, wielding that power to attack their enemies is nothing new. 
but to see it carried out against the most vulnerable people in our society is truly disgusting. So you might be asking, what is so destructive about this system other than the way it allows for wealthy people to avoid taxes and clean up their public image? I mean, that doesn't seem so bad in the grand scheme of things. The article says, this creates a dynamic some researchers and activists have called the nonprofit industrial complex. The zine, working for you, me, we, us, and them, what is the nonprofit industrial complex and why should I care, defines this dynamic as, quote, a system of relationships between the state or local and federal governments, the owning classes, foundations, and nonprofit slash NGO social services and social justice organizations that result in the surveillance, control, derailment, and everyday management of political movements. The state uses nonprofits to divert public monies into private hands through foundations, manage and control dissent to make the world safe for capitalism, redirect activities and energies into career-based models of organizing instead of mass-based organizing capable of actually transforming society, allow corporations to mask their exploitative and colonial work practices through, quote, philanthropic work, and encourage social movements to model themselves after capitalist structures rather than to challenge them. What really interests me is this piece about redirecting energies into career-based models instead of mass-based organizing. This is a disappointing thing to see in movement spaces. Ultimately, someone in the group will make the work they do into a career and end up leaving the organizing work to go further their career, as their efforts are recouped by the system. Yeah, we're never going to revolutionize society by going to work. Our jobs exist within the system of capitalism and at best can create spaces of resistance in the workplace. It is what we do outside our jobs that really counts towards the movement's success. Career-based models prioritize working within the bounds of the system and promote the individual over the collective. In order to address our problems, we must act collectively, not individually. We must work outside the system, not with it or within it. It is not a neutral tool that we can use to further our revolution. It remakes those who attempts to use it for this purpose and inevitably corrupts the motivations of those participating in it. Exactly. It's a dynamic system, not a tool to be used. So we can see how this manifests locally with the owning and ruling class serving on and directing the boards of the largest nonprofits in town. The same people who control the local politics, control the local businesses, and control the local charities. They all serve the same purpose the increased profits of those very people. Back to the article. Charities must closely track how every dollar is spent, so service users are often required to provide detailed personal records and pieces of information, such as social security numbers, as a, re- such as social security numbers, as a requirement of receiving services. This information is then transmitted to the funders to track demographics, allocate funding, track service usage, and so forth. Many times this data collection element serves as a barrier to entry for many people trying to access much-needed services and resources. Whether it is because someone is fleeing domestic violence or doesn't have the proper documentation, people often would rather avoid these resources than deal with the identifying paperwork and data collection efforts of these agencies. Of course these NGOs are helping people eat and survive, states the zine, but people should be able to survive on their own terms, not on the terms of the wealthy, neo-colonial, and imperialist countries who stole the resources and money in the first place. I think that's really important. The idea that people should be able to determine what it means to survive for themselves. This is why the best models of wealth redistribution are direct giving, giving money straight to the people who need it and allowing them to choose what to spend it on. It is the hierarchical top-down nature of charity that imposes the ideals of those giving resources upon those receiving them. That's what has been found in studies recently. 
It's so hard for wealthy people to do, though. They always have this fear of being taken advantage of. And it seems to me to denote a certain awareness that what they have is not rightly theirs, as if they know on some level that at any point it might be taken away from them. Possum goes on. This is far from the reality on the ground. The rank-and-file workers do the grunt work required for these organizations to function at all, and, in the experience of this author, want to do good in the world and help others, manifestations of our shared mutual aid instinct. The problem is, however, how these workers are often not given the tools to truly solve the problems that their service users or clients have, given the layered social conditions of these clients. The workers do try to honor the complexity of each individual, but can only do so much on the grant-dependent nonprofit budget. The same can be said of middle management, as many managers are still closely involved in the daily operations, often knowing the clients as well as the workers, and in many cases, barely make more than the employees they manage. The rare exceptions are the workers who have reached burnout, just there to do a job, a phenomenon common enough in the field to be openly discussed. Many nonprofit managers work proactively with their employees to avoid such a thing, a vast majority of caseworkers at CCAP are generous souls looking to give back to their community while they earn a living. And who can blame them? There's really no other game in town if you want to go into that line of work, and CCAP is, for some reason, always hiring. The reason, of course, is the incredibly high turnover rate in the industry due to burnout. This is why workers should be unionizing to make demands for better working conditions and pay from their employers. This would give them the levers needed to make these places deliver the promises they are intended to fulfill. Then they would have the power to take their workplaces and run them collectively. Can you imagine how much these places could accomplish if they had access to the resources of the wealthy and could run their workplaces themselves as they saw fit without influence from donors or the state? It would be just the same as any other occupation, really. People try to set it aside like it's a special sector of the economy, but it's not. It could be unionized or outright seized by the workers and operated for the benefit of the revolution, as well as any industry. This would also attract a great number of people to the industry who currently stay away because of all the downsides, including burnout. Yeah, burnout is a dangerous state to find yourself in, and it can often come on very quickly and last indefinitely in some cases. Many people find themselves looking for jobs in other fields after just a short stint in the social service industry. The work is brutal and emotionally taxing, and the pay is garbage. Most of the time, workers are overworked and understaffed, and this leads to incredibly high caseloads and less personal service to each client. The article continues. Unfortunately, the phenomenon of burnout is not unique to corporate nonprofit. Many grassroots organizers experience this too. These organizers are typically unpaid volunteers, yet they face the same challenges that social workers do and with less resources at their disposal. Part of the reason that grassroots organizers get so burnt out is in fact because they are left picking up the slack left by larger corporations. The limits imposed on these large institutions make them largely unresponsive to the public and their clients' needs. This leaves a huge gap of services to be filled by mutual aid efforts. Many corporations know this effect well and factor this grassroots volunteerism into their budgeting. When they know that we can and will step up, they know that they can actually reduce services in that sector. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network here in Aberdeen, Washington, has experienced this many times with our local nonprofit Coastal Community Action Program. CCAP case managers routinely give out their information as a resource to their clients, even going so far as to call the Mutual Aid Network to help them get tents. This company gets millions of dollars each year, and yet they rely on volunteer labor time and time again. This is a type of exploitation that is not typically accounted for 
or discussed, but one that negatively impacts grassroots organizations all over the world. These companies use our labor while taking millions each year in order to provide subpar services and actually prevent the efforts of mutual aid organizers, who are trying to accomplish systemic change, not engage in careerism. The problem, states the article, The Nonprofit Industrial Complex, is that while providing for social change is the only long-term solution, short-term services feel so good, both for those working in the nonprofit sector and for those funding them. Paul Kivel is quoted in Working for You, Me, Us, and Them as saying, quote, The focus on the individual achievements of a few can distract us from looking at why there's not enough affordable housing, educational opportunities, and jobs for everyone. This is what entices so many into the field in the first place, the desire to do something to help people. But without us working outside of our jobs to topple the systems, all we are doing by becoming employed in the social service field is making ourselves part of the overall system of poverty management. We can actually be made to do counter-revolutionary work in this way, often without realizing it. For those who become employed in this field after coming from grassroots organizing originally, They can often find it difficult to separate the two, and the one that pays their bills tends to take priority. It is an unfortunate trend noted by many organizers. Those without a solid critique of the state apparatus can fall prey to the good feelings that come from feeling like your job is doing good for the people in your community. But these good feelings will only last so long, and after that comes the cruel realization that they are part of the very system they had started out to change. The article goes on. Nearly every, if not every, social worker gets into the field out of a desire to devote their careers towards improving the world and to giving back. The existing system of capitalist nonprofit entities exploits this willingness to serve by often underpaying its staff. It is not uncommon for the workers at a social service organization to be below or barely hovering above the national poverty level, which is 13590 a year for a single-person household, and 27750 a year for a household of four. Middle management at many nonprofit charities make little more than the employees they manage and are pressed by regional supervisors to do more with less. This, of course, all despite the already shoestring budgets these companies run on. So it's probably not worth selling out your time to these institutions. It would be more effective to work on the outside to achieve real chains rather than take their paltry wages. The revolution will not be funded. Or, like we said earlier... Just start the process of seizing the workplaces for the cooperative operation by the workers. When run cooperatively, a nonprofit can actually serve to cater to the specific needs of its community rather than serving the pockets of those in power. The models would fundamentally shift from being focused on making sure that only certain people get assistance to getting as much assistance to as many people as possible. Continuing with the article, Despite the fact that the majority of nonprofit managers are nearly always promoted from the pool of rank-and-file workers, New managers must adapt their foci from being exclusively on the service users to being on managing the general well-being and continued survival of the organization. Given how tight their budgets are already, these managers have to then hunt and attract additional funding in order to continue to pay their employees' wages, along with the costs required for the continued operation of the site or project that they manage. These pressures create natural blind spots, an inaccurate analysis of the issues, Sometimes, failure to consider the social conditions that give rise to the problems, and little to no ability to address these social conditions in a meaningful way. Yeah, they don't have the time or space to analyze the overall system. When you are in it, 
or you're already overworked, then it's incredibly difficult to see the forest for the trees. This is a good reason to conduct listening sessions with the community you're supposed to serve. So you can hear from those outside the system about what they think about it looking in from the outside. And this is why workplaces should be collectivized so that they can be responsive to needs. Instead of simply focusing on providing specific instances of aid to individuals, they could engage in community building efforts and mutual aid to help build a system in which people are not in need in the first place. This is, after all, a symptom of a broken society. This whole industry only exists because the capitalist system creates so much misery and poverty. It is an an extension of that system, and debatably cannot be reformed. We need to abolish the nonprofit industrial complex and move into collective care models of community-based organizing. We arrive at the conclusion of the article here. Even if the nonprofit managers share the same materialist analysis of social conditions like poverty that complicate naturally occurring conditions like disabilities, they cannot meaningfully change these systemic problems beyond what the organization's lobbyists are able to do. They must instead focus on the individual cases of each client, becoming their allies and champions in the best of cases. Just as the military-industrial complex exists to link the military and industry in a self-feeding loop in order to perpetuate and grow, the nonprofit-industrial complex links nonprofits and those funding them in a likewise perpetuating and self-feeding loop, states the nonprofit-industrial complex. We here in Aberdeen need to be aware of these issues and openly and candidly discuss them. For a long time, CCAP has been a black box for this town. Money goes in, services come out, right? But people seem dubious, and rightly so, about both sides of that equation. There does seem to be a lot of money going in, but what services are being rendered for that money? Is CCAP the most effective way to help people in this town? As a local organizer, you get asked all the time, well, what about CCAP? Why do you need funds when CCAP exists? Or the old standard, did you talk to CCAP yet? All of this misinformation floating around serves to scare some into being suspicious of the company, while others become complacent, thinking that there are grade-A social services in town. Why contribute your time or money to mutual aid efforts when CCAP surely has all that poor person stuff handled, right? Well, they don't. They are understaffed and overworked. They have serious structural issues with management, and they aren't doing enough for the people on the streets. We need people to get involved in grassroots community building and mutual aid, so that we can begin to actually change the material circumstances of poverty and homelessness. We will never get out of this if we continue to turn to the very system that oppresses us for relief. We must collectivize and get organized to take what we need. I really enjoyed this article. It was informative and it was inspiring. I would love to see the workers of any industry collectivize, but the social service industry would certainly be a great resource to seize for the revolution. I think that making the industry more appealing to the slew of people interested in getting involved in care work, but who aren't interested in throwing themselves into the grinder of the nonprofit industrial complex just to become another cog in the machine. It's a great point. The abolition of our current system and the raising up of a new collective form of care work would definitely attract a lot of interested parties. It would also be a good starting point since it resides at the very bottom of the system, catering to the lowest income individuals in society. It would be easier for grassroots organizers to infiltrate and collectivize than a corporate boardroom or a mayorship, for example. It can be very hard to imagine changing a system from inside, though, however. We also need to be advocating for these changes from the outside, thinking about what action of solidarity we can show with these workers and seeing how the anarchist community can find affinity with care workers in their local communities, with the understanding that things aren't working for those who are in need, and that needs to be changed. 
The alternative seems to be death for the poor. Meager scraps metered out from the feast of the ruling class, the poor forever starving on the rations, but kept at bay with the promise of help, the tentative offers made by the system. We starve while their bellies are full. The structure is set, you'll never change it with a ballot pull. It's time for some music now. Here with his new song, East Palestine, we bring you David Rovix. Hit it. Almost ten years ago the train came through In the center of Lac-Megantiquet Blue Scores of people died that night What's been done since then to set things right? They'd like to know In East Palestine Trains derailed in Washington State Talked about reform, too little, too late The industry lobby both sides of the aisle Legalized bribery, American style Ask the folks in East Palestine Reforms discussed but never made Ancient tracks worn and free as expected, the brakes failed. Dozens of rail cars derailed in the town of East Palestine. Carcinogenic chemicals leaked, killed thousands of fish in two creeks. Poisoned air made people sick. You can hear the time bomb tick in the town of East Palestine. Acrid air across the county. Who knows whether to stay or flee? The EPA says it's all clean. It says so on this machine in the town of East Palestine. The next disaster's coming soon, as surely as the rising moon. The air, the water, and lives at stake. But we can't make them get new breaks. Just ask the folks in East Palestine Just ask the folks in East Palestine The state we find ourselves in is not natural. The hierarchies we inhabit are impositions. The people at the top of those hierarchies have a vested interest in maintaining their hold on power, and that comes at the cost of keeping the majority of the population content enough not to rebel. They do this through various systems of control, such as police and prison, military attacks, surveillance, and of course, poverty management systems. 
These so-called industrial complexes are referred to as such because the nature of capitalism is to turn every sector of the economy into a profit-making venture. When private businesses insert themselves into our social structures, they bring their profit motive to those structures, turning them into money-making machines rather than institutions of public benefit. What this means in the social sector is that large non-profits actually make loads of money, reinvesting it into the growth and perpetuation of the company rather than directing it to services. This leads to gap in services that have to be filled by grassroots organizers and mutual aid efforts in the community. While this is technically fine, and in fact, the model we would host would be most effective at providing aid to those in need, without access to the monumental resources at the disposal of these large nonprofits, local grassroots organizers scramble to make up the difference and often fall short of what is needed. For these mutual aid efforts to be more than harm reduction, we must redistribute the wealth these companies hold. We must take the workplaces to be run by the workers. These workers are the ones who know best what is needed and their guidance is necessary for any successful vision of change. But this is not about reforming the system or asking for more funding from it. This is about total abolition. We could see from this article the ways in which the state uses the nonprofit industrial complex to subvert and co-opt efforts of grassroots organizers. They will happily let us fill the gaps left open by their shitty system, and then take those who have proven effective back into itself by offering them jobs into the industry. But we must be willing to act outside of our jobs in order to accomplish the change we need to see. We cannot use capitalism to end capitalism, nor vanquish the state by participating in its institutions. While we must all engage with the capitalist system in one way or another to stay alive, we cannot forget that the means must be the ends in this fight. It is by engaging in mutual aid and autonomous grassroots organizing that we'll be able to topple the system. We must create our own structures that are not reliant on capitalism to survive. Here in Aberdeen, we struggle with the same dynamics. Having just one behemoth social services provider in the county, despite its incredible annual budget, it can still barely manage to provide the services it is supposed to. Case managers are overworked and underpaid, with staffing shortages and turnover being a major obstacle. These stressed workers often burn out, turning to other occupations for income after draining themselves into the work. When this institution is liable to bend to the whims of local far-right, anti-poor politicians, that means that real lives are lost. It is not managerial incompetence that impedes the workers at CCAP, but direct malice from the fascist base and those in power who seek nothing short of the total eradication of the poor. The brutal order imposed on us is done so by people with names and addresses, people who live in our city and drive our streets, people who look down on the bedraggled as an eyesore in need of expunging, rather than neighbors in need of aid. They are not our community. They are our enemies. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from. 
and we know you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Maltov Now, and we'll be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Queer Satanic, who come with good news and bad news for our devilish comrades. The good news, the four former members of the Satanic Temple won their legal defense, and after nearly three years of the Satanic Temple suing them in federal court for online criticism, congratulations on their victory. The bad news, the temple has appealed their loss to keep extending this case and its expenses for the defendants, which in December exceeded over $115,000. Any donations to their legal defense funds would be appreciated. Their website is queersatanic.com. We want to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or to learn more, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Thank you to Ryan Harvey for letting us use their song, If I Had a Rocket Launcher, and thank you to David Rovix for letting us use their song, East Palestine, on the program today. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social, spelled K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A, and follow us and other online activists on the decentralized federated internet. Don't forget to go to bit.ly slash Lakota Law ICWA and sign the petition by the Lakota People's Law Project telling Joe Biden and attorneys for the Department of Justice to do everything in their power to protect the Indian Child Welfare Act and Defense Secretary Deb Haley. It is the heart of winter, and we are still without shelter here in Aberdeen. Without intervention, more and more of our homeless population are becoming casualties of the state. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is still running their winter fundraiser to buy warm weather gear for the homeless. To donate, please visit bit.ly backslash C-R-M-A-N donations. Don't forget, the Communique is looking for artists and author submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry before March 6th for our Spring Equinox edition. As reported previously, Katie Hussey is facing imminent eviction, and her court date is March 8th. Please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey or Cash App, hashtag Katie Hussey, to help prevent them from being evicted or to support them should they do so. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio and our show notes. And finally, IGD recently featured an interview with us on their podcast, This Is America, discussing all the work that radicals are doing on the harbor. For more information and to listen, go to This Is America number 180 on itsgoingdown.org. Remember to check out Sabo Media's new website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today at Aberdeen Local 1312. For updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Saboteurs, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay and neuter your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off.